Hello and welcome to the memorabilia podcast, a belated Merry Christmas. We are recording in between, I don't know what they call it, is there a word for this week? In between a week, in between Christmas and New Year. Hope, hope we were hoping to get this out Boxing Day, yeah. but it never happened. Christmas took over. But we're here now, we're here now, and this is episode 17. We are covering the Stone Roses debut album, also entitled The Stone Roses. They say eponymously. You can say that as well, darling. <laughs> well, I would say that. <laughs> well done. And. Uh, yeah, so I'm guessing there'll be quite a few people listening to this in 2022, seeing as there's only, what, three days left of 2021? Yep. Won't be sad to see the back of it, <laughs> but is 2022 looking any better? You can't wish the years away. I'm not wishing well, them away. I'm not wishing then, them away. You can't wish the years away and then moan that you're 50. That's all I'm saying. I ain't moaning. <clears throat> <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not 50 anyway. <laughs> Yeah, damn it. <clears throat> yeah, I still got a couple of months of my forties left. <laughs> so yeah, we'll try and enjoy that. Anyway, <laughs> without further ado, gosh, not that again. <laughs> you always say that, and I always say I it. No, but don't say it then, and then I wouldn't have to say it. <laughs> All right, I'll let you go into the next bit then. So moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, to what? To the next in your interminable list of top songs. <laughs> Can't wait. Ecstatic. Look at me. <laughs> okay, let's do it then. Here we are then. Interminable list. Down to the last 25 though. Yes. 25 to 21 today. And we did a bit of an experiment over dinner which didn't really work, did it? <laughs> I mean, it was a bit of a, a kind of what's the what do they say? Optimism over experience on your part. <laughs> that's one way of putting it. Yeah, we played the uh, the five tracks to our two children, Sam who is uh, seventeen and Charlotte who is twelve, just to get an idea of what they thought of these songs. None of the songs they'd heard before. Many of the comments were it's old music. Not really interested. No, that was Charlotte. Yeah. <clears throat> Sam was just like, oh, it's all right, bird worse. Bird <laughs> better, bird worse. So it wasn't really very insightful. Yeah, their their critical faculties are not, not developed even slightly, are they? <laughs> no. And apparently 2010 is a really old song. <laughs> well, if you're 12, it is. Good point. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, 25 on the list. This is the Rolling Stones' uh, top 500 songs of all time. They released uh, a new list, in an updated version in September. So we've covered the top 50. Mm. Uh, and at 25 on that list is a song called Runaway by Kanye West. Halfway, get in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you were right, because at the end of the last episode, you said, I can't see us going through the whole top 25 without knowing knowing all the songs. And I'd never heard of this one. It's Kanye West featuring Pusher. Pusher T. Pusher T. Not Pusher. Is that someone different? Well, I think you have to. Oh, that's Usher. Oh, God. 
I'm just embarrassed for you. <laughs> Thanks, babe. So you really like this song, anyway? Yeah, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, normally, like I was saying, over dinner, I can see, like, even if I don't like a genre, I can see that in that genre it might have some merit. Oh, my God, this was terrible. I just, I can't even. <laughs> and it's so bloody long. <laughs> yeah, it droned on a bit, didn't it? Yeah, we we were trying to figure out why it would even be in the list, really. Um, I mean, it's got an interesting start. It's just like piano, and I watched <clears> the video before we played it tonight, and the video's like got loads of ballerinas. It's a bit of a performance thing, um, but like you, I just don't get it. Maybe I don't think it's that I don't get it. I just it was rubbish. Absolute tripe. Well, I don't get it, and I didn't think it was very good either. So, so yeah, I think we should move on from old Kanye uh, to something much better. <laughs> it can't be more worlds apart, could it? Really, at twenty four, it's the Beatles, a day in the life, and I haven't looked at the rest of the list, but I'll be surprised if there isn't more Beatles in that top twenty. Don't roll your eyes. Well, I actually like this song. It's a great song. But you, you, I, I know, but you say that from a background of like virtually every Beatles song. It's a great song. <clears throat> Maybe. But this is like a bit different, isn't it? Yes. So, uh, closing track on Sergeant Pepper. McCartney and Lennon both had songs that they hadn't finished, couldn't finish, kind of mishmashed them together, and it works really well. Friday afternoon. <laughs> Could have been, yeah. Come on, lads. Let's just get this last one over the line. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you've got Lennon's bit at the beginning and the end and McCartney's very clever bit in the middle. Um, it's brilliant. And then for the climax, they've got 40 musicians in as, a, as an orchestra. And... Uh, Again, I watched the video today. They've all got funny noses on, tuxedos. So I think they were just trying to get them in a kind of different kind of mood and vibe. And it, it worked, kind of worked. And they told them that they had 15 bars to ascend from the lowest notes on their instruments to the highest. And then that piano ending. It's like probably the most dramatic <laughs> ending of a song ever, but it works. It's good. And for you to say you like it. <laughs> it's a Beatles song. That's impressive. <clears throat> so thumbs up on that one 23 was uh, from 1977 David Bowie uh, Brian Eno's got a credit on this and the song is Heroes so the background for this one is that he um, he was in Berlin after a bit of a uh, a drug fuel time in LA I think he'd been in and uh, he was detoxing in Berlin and saw two Two lovers, what he assumed were two lovers, meeting at the Berlin Wall and kissing, and he thought it was a bit of a strange place for them to meet below a, a guard on the Berlin Wall and was kind of imagining the backstory to that. But uh, it's a song that resonates with a lot, lot of people. We can be heroes just for one day. Sam thought it was all right. <laughs> he gave it a seven and a half out of ten and then said, but I won't really listen to it again. <laughs> I mean, if it was on, <laughs> if it I was wouldn't on, turn yeah. it off. I wouldn't be annoyed. 
<laughs> high praise. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, and your comment was? Controversial. Very. <laughs> uh, I just, I like the Ewan McGregor, Nicole Kidman version better. <laughs> you might need to explain the background of that. Where it's from. Well, I think that's what Google's for, Rick. <laughs> Okay, it's from Moulin Rouge. Not everyone who listens to the this film. is going to have seen Moulin Rouge. I, most people will be aware of the song. I couldn't remember that it was in the film. As soon as you said Nicole Kidman, okay. I assumed. But Anyway. Anyway. Yeah, that is controversial. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because you rarely hear the original. Most of the time. When it's played, it's a remix that's faster. So we listen to the original. Or it's clipped. Well, it was or a re- it's very it, clipped. It was a remastered version, wasn't it? Yeah, Rich? but that, that, that's just cleaned up. That's not yeah, right. I don't think he did <clears> any further, to no. and, and it doesn't really get going until the end. And so I just think, you know, some of the later, like, remixes or whatever. Yeah. Um... Music changes over time. Music's got faster, for sure. And it feels more appropriate at a faster beat. Which is a shame, because the original kind of loses out. But there you go. There you go, indeed. 22. It's The Renettes from 1963 with Be My Baby. Uh Written by Jeff Barry, Ellie Greenwich and Phil Spector. It's a bit of a... uh, I've been trying not to use this word too much, but it's a bit of a classic. (laughs) Um, But yeah, simple song, good vocals, catchy melody. Yeah, all that stuff. It's difficult, isn't it? It's such a standard. It's hard to even know what you think about it. It's just... Yeah, again, I've used this comment loads. I don't know whether it would be worth a top 50 slot in my reckoning, but it's a good song. I'm surprised it was in there, but yeah, fair enough. Uh, and then to finish off our five today, we have a song from even further back. It was This song was written in 1939 and uh, was written by a guy called Lewis Allen, who was a, a Jewish school teacher in the Bronx. And... Um, sung by Billy Halliday, it's called Strange Fruit and uh, the lyrics portray the, the horrors of... Are you sure it was written in 1939? Uh, <coughs> released in 1939 I by it, Billy Halliday No, I thought it was written then and released in the 50s but anyway, you can Google while I'm just telling the story of the lyrics Yeah, so the, the lyrics portray the horrors of a lynching and uh, she sings black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. And, uh, yeah, it's very haunting. And I can understand why this is in the 50. Nice song, but the meaning behind it and the meaning that people are still quoting now and a worthy entrance. Mm, it was a poem published in 1937. Okay. 
doesn't actually say when it was written. Right. So. Yeah, I did read somewhere that um, she'd had quite a few threats from various places about stopping singing the song, but she never did. Uh, supposedly the FBI. So, all credit to her. And uh, that concludes our little five. So we better move on to 1989 and... We've been there before. The Stone Roses. <laughs> Indeed. The Stone Roses, The Stone Roses, bizarrely, released on exactly the same day as an album we've already covered. Uh, same day release, May the 2nd, 1989, as The Cure's Disintegration. There's a, a classic lineup that recorded for this, this album, for the band. There has been a few incarnations, which I'll get into, but basically you've got Ian Brown... On vocals, John Squire uh, on guitar, Gary Mountfield, commonly known as Manny on bass, and Alan Wren, known as <laughs> Rennie. I was writing these down on drums, and I was just like, oh, for God's sake! <laughs> Not very original. Like highly unoriginal. I think I would even go so far as to say. He's got a bit of an unusual name, though, hasn't he? Gary Mounfield. Normally you'd expect a T to be in there. I, I looked it up because I thought maybe someone's just forgot to put a T in, but no, he's a Mounfield. Must be one of them weird names. To, I bet everyone calls him Mountfield. Probably. Oh, no, no, no. He's got no T. I bet he's fed up of saying that. Anyway, they've got quite a long history because this album came out in 89 and I think a lot of people's impression is that it was a, a swift ascension for the band, which it was. But it took, After a, a, it long, took a long time to, yeah, <laughs> to get to that position, really, before it all kicked off. Um, so I guess it started back in 1980, the origins of the story, when Ian Brown and John Squire were at school together. Apparently they didn't really hang around and know each other. They came together after, just through their love of music. Uh, and they formed a band in 1980 called The Patrol. Uh, with a, the singer and guitarist was a guy called Andy Cousins and the drummer was a guy called Simon Wollstonecroft who is quite an interesting character really which we'll get to um, but they didn't last very long they, they split after a year and um, Ian Brown, he was the bass guitarist at the time he sold his bass guitar to buy a scooter so him and John Squire used to go around on scooters like it was either a very expensive bass or a very cheap scooter. Probably a bit of both, I'd have thought. <laughs> yeah, there's footage of them like riding around like with the mods and that on their scooters. You'd have fit right in. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been lynched. I was going to say. Yeah. With your rocker tendencies. So yeah, Wollstonecroft, this drummer, he left to join uh, a band called Freak Party, which was uh, an early incarnation of the Smiths with uh, Johnny Marr and Andy Rourke. Um, but he was... They wanted to keep him on when Morrissey joined as the Smiths, but he wouldn't He wouldn't stay. He didn't like Morrissey singing. <laughs> but it, even though he'd made that comment, apparently Morrissey still wanted him. He was a decent drummer. Uh, and wasn't sure about Mike Joyce, but... Anyway, that worked out all right for those boys. Probably not so good for Wollstonecroft. Uh, and then... This next story, which is the next leap, is from 1983, which is a pretty good story. Apparently, Ian Brown 
was living in Hume at the time, which is uh, an area 15 minutes walk south of Manchester city centre. There's a lot of kind of, at the time there was a lot of flats. I saw a picture of it. There's like horseshoe shaped um, blocks of flats, six, seven stories high. And it looks like one of them urban areas that you wouldn't really want to live in if you didn't have to. So anyway, he has a party uh, for his girlfriend's 21st. And one of his mates was uh, working at the, the uni as a, like a, a roadie. And um, Gino Washington had played a gig at the uni. Um, the soul singer who Dex's Midnight Runners wrote, wrote about. And then number one song, Gino. And he didn't want to go back to the hotel after the gig. And he just happened to be in the dressing room, Ian Brown's mate. And he said, oh, do you know anywhere I can go? So this lad says to him, yeah, I'll take you to a party. <laughs> Goes back to Ian Brown's party. And according to Gino Washington, he saw Ian Brown with like a few girls around him, thought he was a, an attractive fella. <laughs> yeah, I know. He thought he'd got like star quality, could see this charisma, went up to him and asked him if he'd anywhere he could get him some drugs, <laughs> get him some blow. So there's a bit of a difference in the story. Ian Brown reckons that he took this guy, this Gino Washington, to some club where he knew he could get some drugs uh, and that Gino smoked a spliff outside and got stopped by a policeman and, and the guy, and Gino Washington said, I'm Gino Washington, I can do what I want. And the policeman said, well, get back in there and smoke and get off the street then. Gino Washington said the drugs came to the flat, but anyway, the... The, the long and short of it was that he gave Ian Brown a bit of a pep talk and said to him, have you ever thought about becoming a singer? You've got the charisma, you've got the looks. And Ian Brown said, no. He says, have you wrote any songs? He said, no. He said, well, if you get into music, songs writing's where all the money is. Uh, I'd recommend you do it. Have you written any poetry? And he said, well, I did in school and my teachers said I was pretty good at it and should carry it on. So he said to him, well, it's only one stage further forward, go for it kind of thing. And not long after this party, uh, Andy Cousins, that guy from the original band, was trying to get another band back together and said, are you up for it? And he said, yeah, OK, let's give it another go. I'm, I'm really confused how we got from Gino Washington looking at Ian Brown lustily across the room <laughs> to going for drugs. Like, I, I mean, I, I call me naive, but that was never a quality that I thought drugs, someone you were sorting drugs to needed to have. <laughs> he basically said that he was drawn towards this crowd in the corner. Of girls. No, he said there were and a few girls. And then he saw Ian Brown, he was like, damn. <laughs> no, apparently not, apparently. He reckoned that Brown had got this magnetism. He was, he was laughing and joking with his mates and there were a few girls hanging round. And he thought... Let me get in with this crowd. They look like a good laugh. I want to be in with the in crowd. And then, just happened to ask. <laughs> Dropped it casually <laughs> into conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so later on that year, anyway, uh, they got this, uh, this band back together. They recruited Wollstonecroft again on his drums. Uh, John Squire was back in, and he brought his mate, a guy called John Garner, on the bass, and uh, apparently he won't watch cop on the bass, he could only play one song or something. But you hear that quite often, don't you, about bass players? They just kind of start and then learn as they go along. They settled on the name The Stone Roses. I think there might have been another incarnation in between. There's rumours that they were somewhere else, The Roses or something. 
but the, they settled on that name because of the the contrast between the two things the light and heaviness and the um the softness and hardness well, that's what they tell you now <laughs> what's your take on it then? No, just, i just similarly it's the way they they get things get rewritten as history <laughs> I'm just telling it as it is. Uh, well, you're telling it as it's written on the internet by someone else. Oh, I found in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway, the Rio's for six months. and uh, Solidly. Solidly. There's a lot of drugs involved. <laughs> probably was. Uh, no surprise that our mate Wollstonecroft decides to leave again. He's been looking around for other bands. And he joins the colour field we've mentioned before, because that was the band that uh, Andy Strickland's The Caretaker Race supported. Uh, but I don't think he lasted there very long. But he eventually found his home in the fall. He was in the fall for about over 10 years. So he, he did all right for himself. There was another drummer in between that only lasted a week. They put uh, an ad in um, one of the... I don't know if it was a music paper or a local paper. And Rennie applied. And apparently he was like a cut above the rest of the band. But he decided well, to stick it out. He had a nickname, didn't he? He <laughs> <laughs> was the only one at the time that did, yeah? Straight in. Yeah, unless Andy Cousins was called Cuzzo. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> so this was, this was May 1984, so this is still five years off, off the release of the debut album. Um, and then a year later, in March 85, they finally recorded and released a double A side uh, the first single was called So Young. The B-side was Tell Me, but I think most people kind of play So Young, which is a really punky-sounding record, very different to what they ended up sounding like on The Stone Roses. Um, by 86, there was quite a few frustrations. Um, Ian Brown apparently was going out, trying to get some more publicity. He, he did a lot of spray painting of the name The Stone Roses all over Manchester. Um, which I don't think it did them any favours, but kind of increased their notoriety. And uh, the worst thing they did was they hired a manager around this time, a guy called Gareth Evans, who ended up basically ripping them off and signing the worst record deal in history, which we'll kind of get to. But uh, anyway, he, he signed a, a one record deal before the, the big record deal with a, a company called FM Revolver. They released a single called Sally Cinnamon. Don't know whether you know that song. Mm -hmm. And uh, it sold out of its <coughs> thousand copies, but didn't really have a lot of impact in terms of airplay and getting out further than Manchester. It's a bit of a change in sound. Uh, in 87, uh, Garner was forced out, the guy that couldn't play the bass. <laughs> and uh, they recruited Manny, who I think had, had knocked around with the, the uh, John Squire and Ian Brown back in the day and had been in a couple of bands. But... Uh, Ian Brown said as a quote here, when Manny joined, it almost changed overnight. It became a totally different groove. Straight away, everything just fell into place. So um, that was the that was the four piece then. So, and that was eighty seven. So by eighty eight, they finally got a bit of record label interest. Uh, Rough Trade funded their single Elephant Stone, which they released as a single. It did fail to chart uh, when it was released in eighty eight, but made. Number eight in the UK charts and their reissue of it in 1990. And at this stage, there were kind of a, quite a lot of interest from a few labels, Rough Trade being one of them.
that Gareth Evans, their manager, signed an eight-album deal with uh, a label called Zomba. Zomba were very famous for kind of dance music, funk, disco, very different to what Stone Roses was. And um, they kind of, I don't know, whether, I, I couldn't find out whether they kind of made this subsidiary of it so that it was a bit more indie and not uh, related to Zomba, but it was released on the Silvertone uh, record label, which was a, a subsidiary of, of Zomba. Um, so at this stage they were doing a, a few gigs, they were growing their following in Manchester and the North West was pretty big and um, they did a, a gig at Manchester 2, I don't really know that venue. No. <coughs> um, but they were supporting James and apparently they purposely went on stage late so that they could steal as much of their James's airtime as they could because they knew they'd got to finish at a certain time. And, uh, yeah, they were a bit cocky and a bit controversial. Liam Gallagher was apparently in the crowd and he was a big kind of... Uh, Stone Roses were a, a huge inspiration to him and the reason he wanted to be in a band. And then finally, uh, late 88, they started recording under the Silvertone record with a producer called John Leckie. Uh, originally, it was going to be Peter Hook that was going to produce the song out of... New Order, but apparently you've got to go abroad for some some New Order uh, function. I can't remember what it was. So anyway, they got John Leckie, and he'd worked previously with XTC, Simple Minds, Public Image Limited, The Human League, and a few kind of 60s bands it, it engineered back in the day. So you want, like, wet behind the ears. Uh, and I watched an interview with him. He was saying that they first started recording at Zomba's... Zomba had got their own recording studio in London uh, called Battery Studios, but he was saying, because they were a new band, they got on their time in the studios, like seven till whenever they finished. And he said it just wasn't working because they were staying in a hotel. They were recording at seven at night, getting back to the hotel at seven in the morning, not being able to sleep because obviously everything else was going on in the hotel. You know what it's like in the morning in a hotel. And that just wasn't working. So they moved the recording to uh, Rockfield Studios in Wales. So they got like accommodation. It was one of these that's kind of a remote studio on a on a farm, uh, and it's where Queen recorded Bohemian Rhapsody. You've not seen that film, have you? Bohemian Rhapsody, the yeah. bi biopic, good film actually. Um, so it's that studio there, and finally they got a release out uh, in '89. So just before they released the album, they released Made of Stone as the first single. It only made number ninety. In the in the charts, so again, it was kind of there was a simmering simmering interest. They were getting picked up uh, and noticed a little bit more in the music press, but it hadn't really related to what it was soon to become. And um, outside of the northwest, the gigs were still attracting fairly small audiences. So they released the album on May the second, eighty nine. Um, so we'll get into that in a second. But, um, yeah, apparently their biggest crowds of, of 89 still weren't huge. I think they played in front of, I think it said 5,000 at a venue in Blackpool. And then they did uh, a gig at um, Alexandra Palace. But this is November. This was think when things were really starting to kind of kick off for them uh, latter half of the year. Uh, 7,000 at Alexandra Palace. Supposedly a really good gig. 
Uh, and in between, there was a, a late show TV appearance uh, where they were playing Made of Stone, the single. They got a minute into it in the Power Cup. And uh, you can watch the footage on YouTube. It's pretty funny. Um, Ian Brown has a massive rant, so just screaming amateurs while the presenter, I can't remember the presenter's name, she's trying to go to the next link. It said it was because there were sound limiters on the equipment. So right. it wasn't a power cut, it was a cut-off because it went over the sound limits right. that was on the on the equipment in the studio. Okay. But they couldn't get it back on, so they no. just went to this next... But they didn't have to reset it. Yeah. But, yeah, it's pretty funny, the, the thing. The, the most funny thing about it was the music sounds all right, but his vocals sound terrible and he's and then after they've cut him off and he's he's there standing shouting amateurs and he sounds really amateur himself because his vocals aren't always the best i think if he's had a bit a bit of drink or a bit of smoke it kind of goes off a bit cooler doesn't it so um yeah so let's get into the album itself so let's start with the cover mm-hmm. um john squire Painted the cover. Did you do a little research into this? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was based on the work of Jackson Pollock, who I knew the name of, but I didn't really know much about as, a, as an artist. Famous abstract painter mm-hmm. uh, from America. Um, I'm not sure how he was active, but most of his famous paintings, sorry, when he was active, most of his famous paintings seem to be like from the 40s, 1940s. Uh, I had a look at a few and you you can see the influence is very clear. Um, but apparently he holds the record for the highest amount anyone has ever paid for any artwork, 140 million quid one of his paintings. Wow. Wow, indeed. I don't know how accurate that is, but I read it. $140 million, that is. Uh, and then in 2017, there was um, a missing painting or an unknown painting found in some guy's garage in America. Apparently, this guy bought it at a garage sale for $5. Uh, and... The articles that I read were saying that it was going to go on sales with the auction starting at $5 million for this found, lost painting, whatever. But there was never any follow-on stories. The auction house withdrew it from sales. So whether they were saying that they got bids, like sealed bids from all over the world, and it was expecting to fetch, I don't know, way over $20 million. I presume this was a lost Jackson Pollock. Yeah. You, you didn't say that. Just yeah, it wasn't a John Squire painting. <laughs> it's a bit like... A bit confused. Sorry, yeah. Um, so, but I don't know what happened to it. I can't find the follow-on story. So whether they sold it privately and just kept it under wraps after. Um, or it was a fake. I don't think it was a fake. I think they said they'd had it authenticated. So. But anyway, uh, yeah. So the 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 cover is this painting, and on the front of the cover, is the stone roses with a, a lemon. As the O. It's also got the French tricolor kind of on the left-hand side of the album. And um, the artwork was entitled Bye Bye Badman, which they also named one of their songs after. 
and is a nod to the 1968 student riots and protests in Paris. And apparently they used to suck on the lemons to um, stop the effect of tear gas. Does it work? Uh, I don't know. I haven't tried it. Unfortunately, I've never <laughs> experienced tear gas. Did you Google it? I was going to Google it. I forgot. I didn't, to be honest, no. I just assumed it, it must have had some effect. Um, but no, I didn't. I didn't Google it. I did have a quick look to see what the, the kind of riots were about. And it wasn't... I think there were other... Sorry, the protests. There were other protests in other countries as well. And it was kind of around the Vietnam War and... Not necessarily what was going on in France, but what was going on in the in the world at large, really. Um, but yeah, quite a big kind of revolutionary time, which is something that the Stone Roses kind of wanted to portray. They they felt like they were creating a new musical revolution, and and I think that's one of the reasons why the album was so big. I think a lot of people cottoned onto that. They were a bit cocky. They you know, they, they didn't mind telling people that they were the greatest band in the world, they were bigger than the anyone ever and all this, that and the other. You know, they, they knew how to work the publicity angle of it. Um, but yeah, critically, it was quite well liked. Um, at the end of the year, the music papers liked them. The answer is a bit. It works a bit. Because the acid in the lemon... Uh, mitigates the tear gas but not for very long right so run basically <laughs> with your eyes shut but you can soak your bandana which obviously all good revolu- revolutionaries will have in lemon juice before you go out and get tear gassed on them right so if you know it's coming be prepared yeah or just carry your gif with you <laughs> <laughs> enemy listed the storm rose the second best album to come out of that year, when it did its end of year list in 1989. Uh, number one was De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising, which, bizarrely, I had that record. Of course you did. Not my thing, really, but... Um, you say that now. <laughs> well, it's not, is it? It's not something I normally kind of listen to. Hip-hop. But, but at the time. But at the time, I, what it was... I did some work experience at the the World Student Games were being held in Sheffield in 91. But obviously there was a big run-up to it, so I went to work at the offices where they were kind of uh, organising the World Student Games. And I got pally with a, a girl there who was a couple of years older than me. There's always a girl, isn't Yeah, there? I know. And I had the puppy dog eyes for this girl, obviously. <laughs> but, and she liked it, so you went and bought it. Because you, you, well, so you she took say, me back to her flat to listen at lunch know? to listen to this record. So yeah. And then you bought it, and you're like, oh, "You can come round and listen to my coffee." And she no. went, "Now nah, you're right." <laughs> no, not really. She was a nice girl. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so Melody Maker, the other big music weekly, had the LP fourth. After the Cure's disintegration was number one. Uh, Do little by the Pixies, another. Brilliant album, and I've never heard Essential World by Kate Bush, but it's Kate Bush, so it's bound to be good. It's a pretty good list, then, really. Mm-hmm. Um, inner Sleeve, the LP, is uh, photographs of them from a performance 
on a TV show, The Other Side of Midnight, hosted by Tony Wilson of the Hacienda firm and loads of band management and God knows what else he got up to, but they made that film about him, didn't they? 24 Hour Party People, which I've never seen. Have you seen it? Of course I haven't. Okay. <laughs> Stupid question. <laughs> One of these days I'm going to ask you if you've seen a film and you're going to go, actually, I have. <laughs> Uh, and musically, if you've not heard the Stone Roses, I'll be amazed if anyone listening to this hasn't heard the Stone Roses. But maybe my mum. <laughs> <laughs> no, because she said she goes on and does prep. She did. She did say that, didn't <laughs> so she? So by the time she listens to it, she will have heard the album. Yeah, I threatened to put it on over Christmas. Oh, no, no, I've got to do my own prep. <laughs> She'll have probably listened to it more times than me. <laughs> So yeah, musically, is a, is a bit of uh, the the 60s psychedelic pop as an influence, 70s funk and 80s kind of dance. But I, you, I don't think you can hear the dance influence. I mean, quite a lot of people cite the dance. But you say like that, indie dance but it, was, it was right on that cusp. And it was like, just, you know... <laughs> No, but drum t- machines had come into like indie. Yeah, but I'm talking. I'm talking about. You can hear the dance influence if you think back to how it was, when how, what what the, what music was like when this came out. You can definitely yeah, hear. I don't the think, movement of it. I don't think there's any drum machines on this record, on Fool's <coughs> Gold, which was released, after the original album was released. Uh, they released Fool's Gold and What the World Is Waiting For as a, a double A-sided single. Fool's Gold definitely got that. That had a drum beat, drum machine, drum beat, and uh, definitely has that dance crossover. But I don't think there's so much of it personally on this this album. Um, but that might just be me. Um, what else was I going to say? Oh, yeah, I had a look to see how much it sells for mm. on Discogs. Average price, 80 quid. Never. Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Lowest, lowest. Is it actually selling for that though? Yeah. Lowest, the lowest price. Right, flogging it. Get it on eBay now. Where are you quid? <laughs> I don't know, it's just been Christmas. I could do that. <laughs> it's probably the highest priced album. I can't believe it's higher. Higher than the Beatles, Rick. Woof. It's a bit bizarre, isn't it? Well, they said that there's three for sale at the minute, like lowest price, 67 quid. The lowest it had sold for was like 14 quid, but that must have just been someone making a mistake. And the highest it had sold for was like 120. And it is the original uh, release that I've got. So, yeah, not bad. Not bad. I'm just checking it out. If completed you, items on. If you find me in the back garden, Mum, <laughs> you know why Kate's killed me. Yeah, like uh, you you haven't listened to it for years, you wouldn't even notice. You'd <laughs> be I could be I at least another four years or so before you even realised I'd sold it. Don't do that. <laughs> Meaning. Uh, okay, so is there anything you want to add? Anything from your research that I've missed off? No, it was minimal research. I know you were a bit busy, weren't you? So let's do a track by tracker. Unfortunately, we can't play the track by trackers, but you can listen to it on Amazon Music. It's on Amazon Prime. So if you've got an Amazon Prime account, they have got the album on there with the extra track, Fool's Gold, which wasn't on the original, but it was on 
the American release and subsequent re-releases. Uh, track one, I Want to Be Adored, which was originated from 1985. It was one of their early songs. And uh, there's kind of a really quiet start to it. There's like 50 seconds of understated build-up and then Manny's bass riff starts. Then you've got Rennie's driving drum rhythm and then John Squire's singing guitar. Brilliant start to the album. Are you a fan of it? Decent vocals by mm. Ian Brown. Yeah. He actually said that uh, this was an interview in 2009. If you want to be adored, it's like a sin, like lust or gluttony or something like that. <laughs> so I think it was a bit of a piss take in terms of... He didn't want to be adored, he was just kind of... Well, that's what he said afterwards when someone asked him and, like... No, because it was a bit... <laughs> I mean, the the. The whole record, the whole theme of the record is anti-establishment, it's revolutionary, you know, it's them trying to make a bit of a statement, isn't it? So, And I like the uh, the feedback ending as well, which is kind of part of the, the album blueprint, really. It's got a few of that. Um, and I think a lot of the songs as well, I noticed listening to it and trying to pick out different things from the tracks, was that they all kind of start like a lot of bands, they'll start and like they all start together, but with this, it's kind of a definite um, plan whereby they'll put one instrument and another or vocals and a, you know, and then it kind of builds and then after about a minute, <coughs> it kind of explodes. And you've got this on the the second song, she bangs the drum, um, which was the second single off the album reached number 34 in the UK singles chart and it was the first kind of thing that made an impression in America. It got to number nine in the US alternative charts because they didn't really make it very big over there. I think it, it threatened and then after this album, we'll talk about that in a bit, but it all went a bit belly up. So, But yeah, on this this particular song, She Bangs the Drums, Rennie's hi-hat, he likes his hi-hat symbols, I've noticed. Start it, then you've got Manny's bass line, then Squire's guitar, and then that building sound and driving rhythm section for the vocals come in. Another good song? Are you a fan or not? Yeah. I, see, I wouldn't say I was a fan. I know the songs. I'm, I would have heard them like being played in clubs and yeah. on the radio and things, but I've never owned the album. Yeah. I never taped it off anyone, so if I knew someone who had it, I obviously wasn't that bothered. Yeah, yeah. So... Don't dislike them, but I just wouldn't call myself a fan. Fair enough. Just a bit like Sam, wouldn't I turn it off. I didn't, I didn't mean are you a fan of the album, I just meant, because you, you said to me you'd listen to it three times and it kind of started to grow on you a little bit. Mm. But there was a couple of songs on you really didn't like. So, um, third track, Waterfall. So this time you've got the guitar and vocals first, and then the whole band kind of just kicks in. Um, I think this is one of the songs that a lot of the Stone Roses fans really, really kind of dig. I saw somewhere in The Guardian that it had been voted number five in their list of their fan poll of all the Stone Roses songs. Uh, it was the fourth single released from the LP and reached number 27, but this was two years after the album was released. And at, at this time, this is when, after the album was released, they realised that they'd signed such a shit kind of record deal and they tried to get out of it and um, 
I'll go into it in a bit more detail after, but Silvertone, the record label, kind of still releasing stuff for the next kind of three or four years and trying to get as much out of the material they've got as possible. And uh, the release turns into Stone compilation in 1992, so that was kind of in the middle of a big court case that happened. But yeah, it's another really good song. Really strong start to the album, really. Did you like this song? She's a I know, there was just wasn't any massive standouts for me, I don't think. Like, <clears throat> and it, you know, it's a bit like, because I've heard them all so many times, just oh, in other places. So, yeah, I was kind of struggling to, yeah, all right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think <clears throat> you've, you've talked before about albums not being albums. And I think that the one thing you can say about this, it hangs together well as an album. Most of it does. Yeah, but even the next song, which is like the weakest song on the album, uh, this is track four, Don't Stop, which essentially is Waterfall played backwards. But it's not of... essentially, it exactly is, isn't it? Yeah, I think they did a few other twiddly bits in there, but yeah, it is that with a few overdubs and... Obviously, different lyrics and vocals over the top of it. So, yeah, I mean, at the time, I thought it was all right. I didn't realise at the time that's what it was. Um, even though there's that similarity building into it, I didn't realise it was just that played backwards. But it, I think now, listen to it now, it just feels a bit like filler. Mm. But didn't mind it at the time. Uh, and then, fifth track, which was the last track on side one. Well, it was Bye Bye Bad Man. We already talked about the uh, 1968 revolutionary protests. And um, a bit of a slower tempo to start with. And then it kind of, when it gets that bit where he goes, here he comes. Starts the chorus. That's when it kind of grows into the song, really. Good melody, gorgeous guitar work. Good close outside one, I put. Any comment? No. Bye bye, bad man. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> yeah, the weird thing about this is, um, it was the year after when I kind of got into it, and I'd, I'd I'd heard the name of Stone Roses, but I wasn't really into indie music. But so it was quite. It was an important album for me, in so much as that. There was a, a two or three, like cool kids in our college class that were into this kind of stuff. Michelle being one of them. There's a guy called John Howe. I've spoke about John before. He was really into the Smiths. And, uh, John Howe? John Howe. Oh. Sniffer Howe. And um, I think the first time I heard it, Michelle, I think she made me a tape, but Michelle being Michelle, <laughs> she, she did it. She did side A as side B, so she put side B on the tape first. So I always thought the first song was Elizabeth, my my dear, on side two. So when I actually got the album, I was a bit like, eh? It's the other way around. And I always listened to it the way around that Michelle had taped it for me. B.A. Yeah, but this time round. Because you're right, I hadn't listened to it for years. I put it on when we first moved here, I think, just because it was one of my favourite albums, and I... I just didn't dig it. I was like, wow, 
that's not as good as I remember. But listening to it this time, doing the research, I've really enjoyed kind of listening to it again. So the first song on proper side B, side two, is Elizabeth, my dear, uh, an anti-royalty protest song to the tune of Scarborough Fair, which is a bit different. And uh, I never noticed before, but listening to it this time on, because I did listen to the vinyl, but I also listened to it on Amazon, and it's the remastered version they've got on there. And you can hear, um, at around about 36 seconds, there's a, a sound effect of a silencer gun going off. So I think that's kind of a hidden message that clearly it's about wanting to dethrone the royalty, <laughs> including the Queen, basically. Well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? What, life and everything? Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, very different. Gives it a different pace to the album. But good. Not my favourite anti-royal uh, song. Got to give a mention to Raid the Palace there from our old mate Ian Prowse by Pele. If you don't know that song, give it a spin. Uh, so next song, track seven or track two on side B is song for my, in brackets, Sugar Spun Sister. Another really good song. I sound like a bit of a broken record, but... You like really it. like this album. <laughs> No, I do, I do, yeah, it is, it is a good album, it was important, important, it kind of, as I said, it's what got me into this kind of genre of music, so I owe it uh, a debt of gratitude for sure. So this one starts with a, a chords, drums and vocals in together and then the, the song kicks off about 40 seconds songs in. Is it a straightforward love song? Is it about a girl selling candy floss at the fair? Which it could be construed that way. But nothing seems simple in the world of the Stone Roses, does it? But let's go for that. Let's go are, for you, that. are you happy with that? I'm happy with that, yeah, because I did read somewhere else, someone speculating it was about prostitution, and then some another Stone Roses fan came on and went, no, no, Ian Brown's a scally, but he wouldn't do that. So, anyway. He might not do, about, do it, but he might sing about it. Yeah, very true. <clears throat> uh, track eight, Made of Stone. So this is one of the band's signature tunes, very powerful song. Lyrics portray imagery of chaos and destruction. Is it about the poor 68 riots? Is it about his time as a scooter boy and what he was seeing? Or is it about Thatcherism? Is it about a bit of all three? Who knows? But don't know. And then track nine is Shoot You Down. And this is the first song of theirs that really gripped me. Uh, begins with Remy's beautiful drum shuffles, using his brushes on the cymbals. And I remember during that... Is that because it's the end of side one? <laughs> no, no, there's a couple more tracks. Is it... <laughs> no, no, there's a couple more tracks. So it's uh, the third song, I think, on side right. two. Okay. Or side one, as I thought it was. <laughs> so, yeah, it was pretty much the third song of theirs I'd ever heard. Um. But yeah, going back to the interview from John Leckie, the producer, he said that Remy was like just an absolute natural, made everything look so easy on the drums and he could do lots of different styles and, you know, made it look effortless, basically. Uh, then you've got Manny's bass kicked in by some more exquisite fretwork from John Squire. Not sure who Ian Brown wants to shoot, but 
Could be a breakup song, could be the establishment. And I think Ian Brown's vocals are pretty good on this as well. So yeah, I do like that one. Big tick on that one. Track 10, so the penultimate track on the album is This Is The One. And this is one that starts loud. Then you've got the bass line and guitar and the chiming refrain. So Rose's Blueprint followed on this one. Slowish build up and then bang. <laughs> this is the one. This is the one. Uh, and then it slows down again for the chorus. Is it a song about anticipation? About a girl finding the right guy? Don't know. Might be a bit more to it. There's a line in there. It says, I'd like to leave the country for a month of Sundays. Burn the town where I was born. So I don't know what he's referring to there. He's just fed up. Or... And then final song. Uh, what a book ending. I am the resurrection. So you've got the pure drum to start with. Then Manny's bass line. Which apparently was uh, borrowed from Taxman. Beatles song. Do you know that one? Mm-hmm. Which was also pinched by the jam for their song Start. But this apparently is Taxman backwards. And uh, yeah, I think it's pretty much been played at every <laughs> indie disco I've been to since then. So yeah, it's, it's a late night, everybody drunk, arms in the air dancing. <laughs> Yeah, so there was a, I think there was a four minute single edit, um, but on the album it's just over eight minutes long. What's it about? What do you reckon? Uh, drugs. You reckon? For sure, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, some people did speculate it was. Some said it was an anti-religious song. Uh, some said it was just about Stone Roses being kind of proud of what they were doing and... Not giving two stuffs about what anyone else thought. Who knows? It's eight minutes of brilliance in it to close out the album. And including the the end bit, which uh, John Leckie, the producer, called the freak out bit at the end. And he had to kind of hone them in and get them to kind of pull it together a little bit better. And they did all kind of funky stuff with tape. Because back then they were still recording on tape. I suppose it would be much easier to do it all now, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Um... But yeah, there we go. Give me a rating, babe. <sighs> so it's a bit of a weird one because I just assumed I knew it and then I listened to it and I was like, I've never heard this. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was a bit odd, really. Um, and I really hated that backwards song. Don't stop. Yeah. To the point where I was like, this album's rubbish. Because it, it tripped me up. Yeah. Like, in the listening of it. It was just a, a like a hole in the road. It was horrible. Um, so, maybe a six, I think. Your face. Okay. Oh, if that's what you want to give it, that's fine. I mean, I know I'm capable of giving marks yeah. on my own. Enjoy sleeping on the sofa tonight. <laughs> Six. Oh, okay. I've I've given it an eight and a half. My favourite mark for a good album. <laughs> I noticed that I've given quite a few eight and halves. You have. You a clearly, ten. But I've never quite managed a nine or a nine. I was going to say you can't stretch yourself, can you? To a nine, you just like. I think back in the day, I probably would have given it a nine or a nine and a half, but 
I think it's lost a little bit over time. Do you think that's just because it's been overplayed, though, as singles? Because like you say, everybody indie discs go, I am the resurrection. No, because... At the end, everyone waving their arms in the air and drunkenly singing along. It's like... I don't think it's that, to be honest. Because um, I can still listen to that song and I really like it. The, the one song of theirs that I'm not that bothered about listening to is Fool's Gold, which is probably their most well-known song. It's not on it. No, but they released it as a single just after this album had come out uh, and I think it was their highest charting single I'm not sure but um, yeah no I don't think it's that it's been overplayed because like I said I've not really listened to it since I had it originally I listened I played it to death at the time uh, but yeah like you I think that track kind of detracts from it although I can see what they were doing putting it in there and trying to be a bit different and doing that Beatles thing of looping stuff and doing stuff backwards and all that kind of business. Um, but I just think there's better stuff. I think looking back, I think there's other stuff that's kind of a little bit better and the songs aren't... Although they are, on the whole, fantastic, there's one or two that, I don't know, just didn't grab me as much as they did back then. So I think eight and a half, I'm, I'm happy with that. It's, I think it's a fair rating. Well, I'm very happy that you're happy. <laughs> I'm not happy with a six, but... <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't give it a six. No, no. It? No, that's fair enough. That's <laughs> what you're thinking. So um, we'll see where it, it lands on the charts when I recompile them in a few episodes of time. So what happened next? Let's go into what happened next because we ain't going to be covering another Stone Roses album because I haven't got the second coming and it kind of bombed a bit and it didn't get released for another five years and they just lost all momentum back then. And this was essentially down to that record deal that I already mentioned um, and the manager. The manager apparently, when, he signed, when they signed the contract with him, they signed that he got 33% of all their earnings, which is like way more than is normal he was a bit of a charlatan this guy he, I came, he managed to siphon off money as well I think allegedly better add that in just in case he's still <laughs> um, just in case he's litigious as well <laughs> yeah but obviously things got big things got massive for him you know they were like obviously the look of them the arrogance they influenced a lot of bands there was the whole baggy look that came out of it in the baggy scene and this, they obviously they were wearing the, the baggy jeans Rennie had his bucket hat. I mean, how many bloody bucket hats did you see at festivals back in them days, you know, and that was all down to him. Um, that single that we mentioned, Fool's Gold, apparently they didn't like it as much as because it was double A side with What the World is Waiting For, which I prefer to listen to these days, but um, the record company kind of dug their heels in, so they agreed on this double A sides, and it was Fool's Gold that the radios picked, radio... Uh, DJs and whatnot picked up and played the most of. So yeah, that reached number eight in the UK singles chart. Uh, a year after the album release, they had that huge um, gig at Spike Island, which is um, Witness. So there were 28,000 there that day. It was a red hot day. Uh, I've not seen any of the footage, but apparently it was pretty good. But it was panned at the time because it was so badly organised. The support were like a load of DJs and some sort of African um, street band. They didn't go down very well. 
no one was allowed to take in food or drink. So there were lots of incidents of people bloody passing out. <laughs> they not enough to drink and it was red hot and the 28,000 crowd. So I think it was pretty shambolically organised, but obviously every man and his dog from Manchester said they were there at that gig. <laughs> so, uh, and it was, it was named the Woodstock for the baggy generation. So a pretty infamous gig. Then obviously as they got big and they realised that they were tied into this horrible contract, eight album deal, uh, and they weren't going to make mon much money out of it. They took um, the record company to court, Zomba, Silvertone, and they won the court case. Took them a year to win the court case, but then Zomba appealed and the judge ruled that they weren't allowed to record or play live together until it was all sorted out. So they got two years of doing nothing. In the meantime, because they won the case, they signed to Geffen Records. Uh, Geffen Records, who, this is before they had Nirvana on the roster. Um, but yeah, they were a pretty big deal, American label. And they gave them an advance. I've, I've read different figures for this. Some said four million, some said two, some said one. But quite a bit of money to have in your back pocket with nothing to do. And I think they just descended into bloody drugs and not really having an outlet for their creative minds. And, and by the time that they were kind of allowed back in the studio, I think it was pretty much a disaster from what I've read. They, they were in the studio for hours and hours and didn't really come up with anything. They didn't have any songs. And that album's a bit of a mess. Second coming, I don't think you've ever heard it. It's a different sound, there's a bit more rock sound to it. John Squire was into his kind of rock music, but it's just not as melodic, it's not as it's not as good. And it got mixed reviews, didn't really do as well. It's pretty much the end of the band, really. So, uh, I think they officially broke up around about 96, something like that. Might have been a bit before. I think, I think a couple of people left, didn't they? And they recruited a, a, some other, another guitarist and never going to work you know John Squire and Ian Brown wrote all the songs and when Squire left I was just going to say that that whole scene was very flash in the pan though yeah you know it was very quick yeah. and it came and went yeah. you know and then Nirvana came yeah and everything got a lot darker and then yeah the rave scene took off and rave music which is just a completely different kind of and and so it just and then it got very polarized between guitars and raves and there wouldn't their stuff was in between it didn't have a place well, anymore that rave scene was pretty much kicking off around the same time i think as the stone rose had started um you know because it was all the acid house stuff on it and all ecstasy and all that and then yeah then there was the you're right nirvana grunge Early nineties. You say that the the beginning of rave was obviously not um was obviously like all the illegal raves and stuff. But yeah. what I mean is, by the time they weren't playing, rave had gone mainstream. Yeah. So, like it was in the clubs then. So there were rave nights and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And so then, then yeah. it, like I say, it kind of got very polarized in terms of the types of music that were going on. Yeah. 
I mean, obviously, pop and towny stuff was carrying on as it does. <laughs> Weatherspoons. Yeah, yeah. It I wasn't mean... Weatherspoons at the time. What was the. Yates's. Yates's. Yates's Wine Lodge. <laughs> yeah, I mean. That's just a world of its own. That just, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's around this time I started going to the lead mill, and like, obviously, well, not obviously, the, the, on a, their Saturday night thing was they had a band on, and then they had like the, the disco after, which was pretty much alternative indie stuff. So around that time, it was kind of. There was still that baggy scene, you know. There was still like that's, but it didn't. It it kind of evolved into that, though, didn't it? Because yeah, you had like yeah, like, that's what I mean. That the, yeah. things had moved on. Yeah, yeah. By the time they came back, yeah, but that was kind of early nineties, and you got like, I don't remember bands like Flowered Up, Northside, In Spiral Carpets. It was all that scene, wasn't it? Really, uh, Charlatans, and then you got your Primal Screams that came along, and then Britpop. You know, so it, it, it and yeah. But again, Primal Scream is a bit like. Well, Manny Manny went darker. to Primal Scream, didn't he? I think I think he went to play bass in Primal Scream. Yeah, definitely, it was a different sound, but it kind of evolved from that that kind of scene. And then yeah, ninety four really was the start of Britpop, wasn't it? When you got you know Park Life and definitely maybe and good times really. But yeah, so they came back with something that just wasn't didn't fit in it was disjointed and well it the, hadn't, heart, the heart wasn't it it hadn't really evolved had it, it hadn't had the no. chance to kind of grow across that time with all the different influences that were happening then yeah and I, I think they'd the three of them had had children as well you know so not a good idea <laughs> <laughs> no, no if anything's going to kill your creativity that's it yeah. <laughs> well John John Squire went on and formed uh the Seahorses, um, but they were a, kind of a one-album deal. Apparently they did uh, record a second album, but it never got released. I think there was a bit of infighting there. Uh, and he kind of descended into a really bad cork habit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, things were pretty bad for them all. Uh, Ian Brown, obviously, he's had a, a solo career since then. But um, he got jailed in 98, I think it was, for threatening to chop off an air stewardess's hands on a flight back from Paris to Manchester. Um, so there's some funny stories about his time in prison. No, he... <laughs> no, you were saying that was a funny no, story. No, I was no, like, no, no, no. it's not that funny. <laughs> no, he, he kind of denied it and said that... Because apparently he went and banged on the bloody... What the pilot's door? But you could still do that, then. <laughs> well, I'm guessing they were trying to refrain him. Restru- refrain, no, I restrain. do, but yeah. like if you did that now, would you know what I mean? But the, apparently, the pilot was a magistrate, and Ian Brown said that he kind of exaggerated what had gone on. But anyway, he got jail for he got I think two months, uh, and he ended up going to the bloody strange ways. They moved him from somewhere that was pretty low key to bloody. One of the highest maximum prisons in in England, and uh, apparently one of the the prison warders or the guy that was supposed to do the transfer said he couldn't do it because he'd been to see Ian Brown in in concert and he'd <laughs> he could, he just couldn't put his ear in <laughs> in the back of this prison van or something like that, uh, and he never got any hassle in prison because it was a Somalian there. A great big giant Somalian guy who looked after him and said, "If you got any trouble, 
I'll look after you because you gave me two tickets to um, one of the gigs. I think it might have been Spike Island. You know, I couldn't get in and you, you gave me some tickets. You didn't know me, so... But he's done some good stuff. I mean, he, apparently he... I think when he got that um, massive advance, he took part of his advance and walked around the streets of Manchester with £100,000 in a carrier bag, handing it out in chunks to homeless people. So, you know, a bit of a lovable rogue in, in some respects, but a bit of an idiot in others. Because um, then you've got... 2011, the big comeback. Can you remember that happening? Where there was a, there was rumours that they were going to get back together. So they held a press conference in November 2011 and uh, announced the Heat and Park gigs. Charlotte was too, Rick. I don't remember anything from that period. <laughs> yeah, I so... Was, I was averaging about three hours sleep a night and had been for the previous two years. Like, literally, my brain was jelly. Right. Well, there was a big excitement at the time. Um, they played these two gigs, which morphed into a third, three gigs. They announced um, a free gig as a warm-up in Warrington, at Warrington Peace Hall or something like that. Um, there's a brilliant documentary made by Shane Meadows called Made of Stone. You can watch it on YouTube. I watched it this week. It's quite good because it's obviously some bootleg version with Spanish subtitles, so I could learn my Spanish at the same time. As <laughs> watching this documentary, yeah, but it's good. It's well, a good documentary. Bet you're fun at parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, this, this, once is, or twice. Uh, this is Sam's favourite saying because we went to a party and Rick started doing his Duolingo <coughs> in the middle of this party. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's never the wrong time to learn Spanish, darling. <laughs> Yeah, so the, the gigs were successful. Uh, they released two very average singles in 2016. All For One and Beautiful Thing. In fact, I say average singles. All For One's terrible. Beautiful Thing's not bad. It, but not good, and that was it. They disbanded again in 27, and game over. Whether they'll ever reform again, I don't know. 27? 2017, sorry. <laughs> I was like, did I miss some years? <laughs> I probably just said it wrong. Uh, and then to bring us right back up to date, uh, in July 2021, so six months ago, Ian Brown received a two-week Twitter ban for posting false claims that the vaccine was not effective. Uh, he pulled out of a headline festival slot as he disagreed with its vaccine passport for entry policy, calling it the new Nazi normal. And his anti-lockdown song, Little Seed, Big Tree, which featured lyrics alluding to the conspiracy theories around COVID-19, was taken down from Spotify. So the fella is not without controversy still. Yeah, he's a, he's a big anti-vaxxer, anti-mask, denier of COVID. So he's probably another one that spent three weeks in hospital with a bad cold. <laughs> so there we go. That's as much as I can... Uh, Tell you. Well, it was more than I could tell you, so you know. Fair play. <laughs> no, I quite enjoyed doing the research on it, to be honest. Um, it was good looking back on a a good time for me, good period. And uh, so, yeah, normally we'd move on and do the week that is 
release in 1989, but we've already done it. So, there we go. There we go. Yeah, so as we'd already covered this exact week, I delved back into my diaries rather than using the internet <laughs> to see what was what, so what, what was listening to, what was it, well, usual. Football. Tennis, more tennis. Tennis? May. Football season about finished, you know, so... Play tennis in Graves Park. You were drying your football tears with a tennis racket, were you? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I think I think that was the year that Wednesday survived getting relegated on the last game of the season, so there weren't any tears, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, but, yeah, the only record in that month, the month of May in 89, that I could find that I went to buy was Remote by Hue and Cry. Which bizarrely, never heard of it. I bought on cassette, mm. and I never bought cassettes. I hate cassettes, but it said in my diary that it were two quid cheaper than vinyl. I had an extra track on it, <laughs> <laughs> and your Yorkshire kicks in, and there you were. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think it was um, the follow-up to uh, you know the Hue and Cry's debut album, which name scared me. It's got Labour Love on it. It'll come to me. So, yeah, I was listening to that. And uh, telly-wise, I know we covered a lot of this last time, the only two TV programmes I could find that we hadn't talked about before were a programme called Three Up, Two Down, which I had to internet because I couldn't remember it at all. I definitely watched that. Yeah. So I found the picture and showed you the picture. It's got Michael Elphick. Mm. Elfnick? Elphick. Elphick in it. Uh that girl that was in and Lizette Anthony, mm. she was in Krull, the movie Krull. I don't know you ever saw that. <laughs> no. I want to see that picture, yeah. Uh, and I think it was pretty much about a bit of rough Michael Elphick trying to shack up with this posher woman. Kind of a comedy drama thing. And uh, the other programme that came up was The Manager S, starring Cherry Lungi. I think that's how I pronounced the name. So she was um, given the job as a a football league professional coach, manager, head coach, whatever. So it was good. I didn't realise it was only 12 programmes long, two series, six programmes on each one, but yeah, it was a good drama. And obviously about her battling everything, as you can imagine, as a, as a woman. So yeah, that was pretty much it. Uh but we could link it to what we're watching now because I'm pleased to report <laughs> that I'm going to promote it even further than before. I managed to get persuade Kate to watch an episode or two of Ted Lasso. And she liked it. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> Shock, God. Shock, horror. So Ted Lasso, if you've not listened to us before and haven't watched Ted Lasso, it's on Apple TV and it's about an American football coach that comes across to get a job at a fictitious Premier League football team called Richmond Athletic. Um, so the background of it is football, but it is funny. It is laugh out loud funny. So that's yeah, very you, good. Yeah, you'd have to understand football. Yeah. Which was a... Or like football. Yeah. Or have any interest in football. <laughs> Which I think you thought <laughs> it wouldn't work, but it does. Uh, what else have I watched? I've watched Hawkeye. With Charlotte, we quite like our Marvel, me and our daughter. Yeah. 
You do. So that's not bad. Uh, we have been still been watching old series of Medium. We're up to series five out of seven, about halfway through <laughs> that. That's very good. That's uh, Patricia Patricia Arquette. Mm. And I've been watching while I've been going on my cross trainer, other than Stone Roses documentaries. <laughs> uh, the Zen Pet, the final series that they made, which I don't think I ever saw. I saw the one where they went out to Arizona, which was series three. The BBC made the last two series. And then the fourth one where they ended up in Havana. And again, laugh out loud, funny, a lot of it. Brilliant. Does that mean we can delete it off the skybox? Yeah. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, you can, well, they're the first two series, but I can watch them elsewhere now. But this particular series, series four, it is at the moment on BBC iPlayer. I think it's only got until January the 4th. So if you missed out on it as well and you fancy a binge watch, <laughs> get on it quick. <laughs> well, uh, I'm still watching Death in Paradise and I'm yes. up to series nine of ten. Oh, wow. I'm halfway through series nine. So I've got series 10 and the Christmas special, which I've just recorded to watch. Well, I did notice that the the guy, the main guy, the inspector guy, has changed over the last week twice. I know. So originally it was... I don't, that's, I can't, that's a reflection more on how many I've watched rather than how quickly they turn over. So who was the first guy? Oh, just no. Right. I can't do this. I have no idea. Well, Google him up. The first guy was... I can't even remember. I did. I did look up his name because I was thinking I'd seen him in something else, and he was only in it for one series, right. and then he was killed off because family stuff was going on, and he wanted to actually see his children right. rather than be in the Caribbean. Where is it actually filmed then? In the Caribbean, and right. then the second person was. Um, that really tall guy with blonde hair. That's so the one that I meant. This. That's the one that I meant. That's the one that I saw. The tall guy with the blonde hair. Right. So there was someone before him then? Yeah. So Chris Marshall, is that the one? Yeah, he's number two. Right, so who was number one then? He's not on there. He'll have to go sideways. Okay. <laughs> ben Miller? I think you just... Main yeah. detective, here we are. Yeah, Ben Miller. Yeah. Well, you, you said he went on there, and he was. You went past him. Well, I didn't recognise him. It's obviously <laughs> changed. <laughs> and then Ardlo Hamlin, who, as you said, it was a bit freaky. I just, I couldn't quite get over the Father Ted thing. And then it's just now Ralph Little. Yeah. Good footballer, Ralph Little. Couldn't be less interested. <laughs> so, which one's your favourite? Uh, <laughs> I I mean, mainly I'm going, ooh, there's only a series and a half left. I'm going to have to find somewhere else to watch. Oh, dear. Okay. <clears throat> Not that invested, I think we could probably say. Fair enough. I, you know what shocked me most? No, but I'm guessing I'm about to find out. Well, do you want to know? I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> Was the... It's run to... 10 series yeah and people are proper passionate about it <laughs> like i'm i like occasionally i'm like oh i'll just google that like vaguely interested whilst i'm watching it and there's like five different forums and blogs 
It's a big deal, obviously. It is a big deal. And then there's people commenting about the Christmas one already. And they're very excited. And I'm just, yeah, I'm a bit... I'm a bit weirded out by the whole thing, to be honest. I think you should stop watching it, then. No, I'm just going to watch it to the end, and then I'm going to find something else. <laughs> well, I actually went to the pictures as well. Uh, just before Christmas, Charlotte and I went up to the, the local Odeon, which we can walk to. And, uh, oh my God. Spoiler alert, if you've not seen the new Spider-Man movie and you don't want to know. <laughs> they came back and I said, did you enjoy it? I've never seen him smile so widely. Freaky. Charlotte was like, it was all right, it's a bit tense. <laughs> <laughs> what a great film. What a great film. Spoiler alert, switch off. Give yourself 15 seconds, oh, fast for forward. Sake. Don't do spoilers then. I've got to say something. The old two Spider-Men from the two previous Spider-Man incarnation movies were in it. The funniest thing about that was Charlotte was like, I don't know why he was so excited about that. Because <laughs> it's like these days, how hard is it to get like people together because everyone's so busy. It was brilliant. I didn't know it. I was, it was like a surprise. I've not been that surprised at the cinema since I went to see... Sixth Sense, the and I jumped out of my skin. No, the Truman Show. <laughs> that was after Sixth Sense, one. I think yeah. Sixth Sense came first. But the Truman Show, I went into that, and I just heard it was a good film. I didn't know anything just, about just it. Just in case anybody just thinks he's completely weird, he won't read reviews beforehand, so he goes in completely blind, and then he gets annoyed if the films are crappy because he hasn't bothered to read the reviews. <laughs> no, I get an inkling of whether they're any good. I won't read the reviews. I'll look at the ratings. So if it's anything like that's got... Like if you go on IMDB, I use that. If it's like a six or something like that, no, I won't bother. But you've got to have a vague premise. Of what, but that film, I didn't know what it was about. So I was with Truman Burbank. I, I was living it with him. And he had a sixth sense. I didn't know the, the spoiler in that. So it well, was one of them moments. No one really knew the spoiler in that because that was pre-internet. Yeah, but people Largely. talked. People talk. I yeah. know, but no, yeah, but people wouldn't tell you. Everyone's like, oh, oh, it's got a brilliant twist. You'll never get it. You don't remember that? No, I didn't know. It. I got. That's what I mean. I didn't even know it got a twist. Oh, so you obviously had good mates. <sighs> uh, yeah. Books. What are you reading? Anything? Uh, I have just finished a fantasy novel, and I'm debating whether to shout out for the part three which is not out until may on kindle oh i got you well it's not out and it's out on kindle in may right good then it's all right it's a fancy novel there's a formula it follows the formula it's quite good do you want to give it a plug or can you not remember what it's called or who it's by yeah uh, i can't remember what it's called or who it's by and i suspect i can't pronounce it either so let's not <laughs> it's like sometimes you live in this vacuum <laughs> it's just well bizarre. I just I remember stuff that happens in real life right <laughs> if I want to know the name of that book I'll go onto my kindle account and I'll find out the name of it <laughs> I don't need it in my head <laughs> okay well, I'm, uh, I'm revisiting my favourite author of all time, Colin Harrison. I'm reading his book from, I think it was 
probably early 2000s. Uh, in fact, I can tell you when it was from, because the first time I read it was when we went on holiday with your parents to Florida. So Sam would have been one. He so was born. 2004 he was born, wasn't he? So it was late 2004. So that's when that book was from. He was nine months old. Yeah. Uh, so I'm enjoying that. And I got three books for Christmas. I got Robert Forster's book, uh, Grant and I. Robert Forster being one of the singer-songwriters of the Go-Betweens. So looking forward to that. Story of 91 about Sheffield Wednesday's famous season in 1991 when we beat Manchester United at Wembley in the cup final. Uh, never been the same since. <laughs> nope, you're right, it hasn't. And I also got the latest Michael Connolly novel because I'm into my crime thriller books. So latest Harry Bosch book. So yeah, I've got some good reading ahead of me. And what else? What have you been listening to? Anything new music-wise? Or... Uh... You don't listen to podcasts, do you? No, I hate podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't understand why you listen to this one. <laughs> Just, I've, I've, got, I've got to check. It's not, like, absolutely terrible. But you've done the editing, so surely you know that. I mean, I'm like, I've lived through it. I don't need to listen to it as well. Yeah, but I'm funny. You know, I, I can cut your bits out. But... <laughs> Is that what you rely on me not listening to it? And <laughs> cut me off. All of them. Uh, I have found a new playlist on Spotify. And there's quite a lot of stuff on it that I quite like that I'm going to go and investigate. Okay. Don't, don't even ask me for names. <laughs> like, so how do you how do you find the playlist? <clears throat> uh, I I put in indie something or other. <laughs> Not actually something or other, just <laughs> Some, indie. Sometimes. <laughs> right. Okay. I, this one was. I we found a good one over Christmas. We. Well, your parents. Well, we weren't. We weren't enjoying the music you left us with when you buggered off somewhere, so we changed. I changed it. Was it. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> they were as unimpressed as me, and so I put in indie Sunday morning, <laughs> and we found a really good playlist. So we were we were quite liking that. Um, what to, what did I? I can't remember what it's called, but yeah, I just there was a few, a few things, and I was like, oh, I like this. Went and had a look, had never heard of them. And then there was something else where I was like, hmm, I think I know who these are. And went and had a look. And I was like, oh. So there was just like three or four bands where I'm like, oh, I'm going to go and find out stuff. Wow. Listen to things of them. Wow. Why is that? Wow, that's how I do it all the time. Because I just said <clears throat> you just live in this vacuum and don't seem to... Well, I don't remember the names of any of them offhand. <laughs> I have to go. I favorited them on Spotify. I have to go back and have a look. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. Okay. <laughs> well, I listen to because one thing that I am not doing and I haven't done for a while is really listen to new music. So I don't really listen to six music anymore. I used to listen to it before pandemic when I was out for job in the car a lot more. And he used to he used to listen to a lot more new music through that really, um, but I did listen to uh, a podcast. The three lads 
the only three lads podcast. And shout out to those boys. Uh, I found them because Andy Strickland had been on them before he came on our our podcast. Uh, so these are Americans, but they're into their indie, English, alternative, punk, all that kind of stuff. And they did the, the best new uh, albums of 2021. And they had a, a guest on from a band called Ducks Limited, which I'd never heard of. So they've got some really good stuff. And Ducks Limited picked their... One of their albums was uh, Barnyard by a group called Good Morning. And they've got a good song called Country, so I quite like that. And then there was someone else picked a song by Goat Girl, which are kind of punky new wave band from South London. Uh, and they were quite good. So there's some good stuff there that I will investigate further. Um, so all that we've got left to do to wrap up this episode is our singles of the week and as I thought this was coming out on Boxing Day I picked a Christmas single I just looked over at your notes and I was like oh it never even occurred to me to pick a Christmas song yeah so I picked my favourite Christmas song which is Christmas Wrapping by The Waitresses and I did a bit of research I enjoyed researching this actually now this was released in uh, 1982 Uh, well originally 1981 when it failed to charts it reached number 45 in the UK, but I can't remember hearing it at Christmas around that time when I was 10 years old. The first time I ever remember hearing this song was on the way to Barnsley for a night out with Dave and Ringo. So it would have been at least 89, maybe probably 90. On the radio? Or I don't know. a Christmas I th- compilation? I think, I think it was on a Christmas compilation or a, a, a tape that Dave had got. And I remember saying... What's this song? It's very good, this. I think it started to turn up on Christmas compilations because it was probably because the royalties were cheap. Probably. And then I think that it got more and more well-known and now everyone really likes it and it gets played. Yeah. Like, foot on its own merit now. Yeah. But I, I don't remember it until it was on compilations. Right. Well, the story behind it is the writer, Chris Butler obviously, from the waitresses. Uh, he completed the lyrics in a, in a taxi cab on the way to a, a studio. And the record company were pushing them to come up with all their artists to come up with Christmas songs. Uh, and he thought, oh, you know, another thing I've got to bloody do now. You know, they were struggling as it was. He, he, he wasn't a fan of Christmas. This is back in the summer, because obviously you plan six months ahead or whatever, don't you? Uh, and he said the premise for the song is that at Christmas time, for him, it was everyone, they were from New York, everyone running around like a bunch of fiends. It wasn't about joy, it was something to cope with. So the song, the song tells this story of a, a busy female singleton uh, determined not to join in with the exhausting Christmas season, basically. And she turned down all these invites, resolves to miss this one this year, which is in the lyrics. And earlier in the year, she's met this guy in a ski shop, uh, got his number, but never asked him on a date. They endured a few attempts to meet, but mishaps kept happening. This is all through the song. Apparently she had a debilitating sunburn and he had car trouble and this, that and the other. So fast forward to Christmas Eve when our heroine is roasting the world's smallest turkey. Uh, she suddenly realised she forgot to buy cranberries. 
I didn't forget to buy cranberries this year, but this lady apparently did. You didn't. I haven't actually done anything I noticed. with the cranberries. Yes, well done. Uh, so she turns up at this 24-hour grocery store. And who does she run into but the guy that she's been chasing all year, who's also forgotten to buy cranberries. And it brings her Christmas to a very happy ending. And in the final refrain, she admits she couldn't miss this one this year. So it all Christmas wrappings it up quite well. Lovely. So it's had a lot of covers, uh, most notably in 1998 when it was the B-side to the Spice Girls' Christmas number one, Goodbye. And uh, that actual single meant they became the first act to have three consecutive Christmas number one singles since the Beatles in 1965. And I now think that's been usurped, hasn't it, by this, I don't even know what they are, Lad Baby, that have got to number one again. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. You you might know a bit more about them than I do, but... They did just, they just do charity singles. Right. So other covers by Kate Nash, Summer Camp, that's a bit of a weird version. Uh, Martha Wainwright, Electric Six did a version, The Saturdays, Kylie, awful version. <laughs> Sorry, Kylie, wasn't a fan of that. She did it with Iggy Pop, not very good. Uh, the best version I listened to was by Bell and Sebastian. So there we go. Uh, the Waitress's other notable song is a song called I Know What Boys Like. Do you know that one? Nope. I Know What Boys Like. Good song. So there we are. That's my little synopsis of Christmas rapping. Do, 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 do. And your single of the week, Kate? Do, 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 do. Sorry. <laughs> Can I, can I, have you done? Can yeah, I have finished, mine? I finished. Right. Go well for done. it. Uh, Only the Moment by Mark Almond. But. Yes. I do like this. But the. My interest in the song was uh, revived. So you, sorry, you've, you've got the seven inch. We're looking yeah. at the seven inch version. Did you buy that at the time then? Um. So it's got a nice cover photograph of Mark in. Kind of sepia. I would suggest the fact that it says Ipswich Record and Tape Exchange on the price label, two pounds on the front. Have you got one? (laughs) Would mean no, I didn't buy it at the time. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Then someone posted um, a link on one of the Mark Ullman groups on Facebook to a cover that someone had done um, that's on YouTube and it's really good. (laughs) So... Katerina Kovac uh, did a cover of Only the Moment and she slowed it right down and made it like a really kind of heart-rending ballad. Um, and it's never been released. It's not, uh, it's literally just a YouTube video. It's not, not a, you can't, you can't download it. It's not a song that you can get hold of. Um, but I like it. I like it better than his version. Yeah, we just watched it on uh, on YouTube. You played, you made me. Or requested I played it. No, I said you could. Yeah, okay, well, you. whatever. I said requested. <laughs> but yeah, it was good. And the comments underneath it echo what you said. A lot of Mark Arman fans there saying never thought they'd uh, find a song that they liked that was a cover better than Mark's version. So we'll uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, episode notes, whatever you want to call them. So if people want to go and listen, they can do. Uh, and that pretty much concludes it. All we have to do is pick the next album. You do. Which I will do right now. Thank you for sticking with us if you've made it this far. 
Uh, quite a long episode, this one. Uh, I don't think the next one is going to be quite as long. <laughs> uh, we're going to be covering a band called the American Music Club, who I'd never heard of, to be honest. And they had an album released in 1994 called San Francisco, which is in Kate's vinyl collection. So I'm going to be relying on uh, some of Kate's knowledge and how she picked up on this and etc, etc. Um, and obviously that'll make it way shorter <laughs> so it's fine <laughs> so yeah we're due to publish that episode on 8th of January but I'm suggesting that we record it before if we're going to release it then because that weekend's going to be a bit crazy busy so I'll see if I can get the research done and maybe do it this, this weekend I've right. uh, got them two football games and just been back at work and all so I've got a few days off. Might see if I can get it done. Hey, this weekend. Uh, so all that's left to do is thank you again for tuning in. Hopefully you will listen again to us. Please give us a rating on iTunes if you can be bothered to go on there and give us some five stars, four stars, whatever you feel is appropriate. Ratings, you can find us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and email and I think it is memorabiliapodcast at gmail.com have you had any emails yet? Uh, next question <laughs> <laughs> that'll be a no <laughs> uh, anything... come on someone send him an email he's <laughs> desperate mom don't bother I get enough emails from you it's fine <laughs> uh, yeah anything else for you to add Kit? no okay thank you very much for listening and hopefully you will hear us again on the next episode, which will be episode 18. Wow. Cheers, guys. Bye. <laughs>